There's so much demand for legal service and so much demand that goes unmet. I think there's plenty of room for everybody. Today on Law Next, my guest is Ralph Baxter, who spent nearly a quarter century as chairman and CEO of the law firm Oreck Harrington and Sutcliffe, leading its growth from a regional law firm to one of the world's largest and most prominent, and who now devotes himself to inspiring positive transformation in the way legal services are delivered globally. This is Bob Ambrosia, and you're listening to Law Next, the podcast that features the innovators and entrepreneurs who are driving what's next in law. We'll get to today's interview in just a moment. But first, let's hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. ShareFile is a secure, easy-to-use collaboration and workflow solution that has helped more than 90,000 customers secure data, share files, and collaborate on documents. With ShareFile for Legal, you can eliminate the never-ending speed bumps during client collaboration, giving your clients one tool to onboard, sign retainers, and share requested documents. It can also be easily integrated with popular workplace tools like Google Workspace, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Zapier, and more bringing even more ease to the client experience. To learn more about how ShareFile for Legal can help you keep work flowing, go to sharefile.com. And now, on to this week's interview. Ralph Baxter, how are you today? I'm doing great, Bob. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And uh, we are sitting here face-to-face live in a conference room in Seattle where we both happen to be and we're able to get together uh, and and chat. So uh, happy to be able to do that. And uh, heck, let's let's start with the big news. We're, we, uh, here we are uh, talking on a podcast. You're about to launch your own podcast, right? Yes, I'm very excited about it. I'm I'm going to co-host a program, Law Technology Now, with uh, on the Legal Talk Network. Um, I my participation will begin. Uh, we're scheduled to begin in October, and I'm uh, I'm very excited to follow in in your footsteps here and and see if we can't help. Uh, help uh, people in the world understand how law works and how it can work better for them. Not just in my footsteps here. I actually uh, for, spent a little while as, as one of the hosts of that program. Uh, Monica Bay started that program a, a number of years ago, and I stepped in for a while. And I know Dan Lena is also doing it. And they, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite podcasts to, to listen to. So uh, I look forward to that. When do we get to hear your first? Uh, when, are you up, when are you up on the airwaves, so to speak? Well, we have some things that are going to be up um, this month, but I'll start hosting uh, in October. Uh, so, Ralph, as I said, from 1990 to 2013, you were the chairman of ORIC. Uh, you uh, left there in 2013. Since then, uh, if I can just rattle off a few of the things you've been doing. You are you are chairman of the advisory board of Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute. That's right. right? Well, yeah, I, I did do that. You did that, do that. that you're, okay. That's in- uh, you're on the board of directors of INTAP. That's right. still a thing. Uh, Legal Advisory Board of LegalZoom. Right. Uh, you were on the boards of directors of both Lex Machina and Ravel Law before they got sold to Lexus. Is right. that right? Yeah. Uh, senior advisor and member of the advisory board of Stanford Law School Center on the Legal Profession. Fellow and senior advisor to Codex at Stanford. Member of the advisory board of the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. Member of the advisory board of the Georgetown Law School Center for the Study of Legal Profession. So my, my question is, uh, 
you essentially retired uh, in 2013 from the firm. What what is driving you? What is what are you, what what's driving you to be involved in all of these programs right now and to be doing all this stuff? I know we can do better. We all of us who are involved in legal service can do a better job of meeting the needs of people who depend on law for their personal issues and their business issues and and, and their public interest issues. I know we can do better. I, I, this motivated me from the very beginning. From the from the day I became a lawyer, it seemed clear that we could do it better than the old-fashioned ways. When I was a young lawyer, I wondered why anybody would pay me the amount of money that was being charged for me um, to do the kinds of tasks I was doing. There was, surely there was a more efficient way we could do it. And when I left Oric, I had no, first of all, I had no interest in retiring, and I deny I'm retired, right? But it was time for me to change my focus from what I was doing with one law firm, one enterprise, to something broader. But I'm really driven by that. Law is more important than it ever has been in the history of humankind. It's, and, it, and it's in everybody's life, and it's in every business's business, and it's in every uh, NGO's uh, affairs everywhere. And, and it's not being delivered in the way that the clients need it to be delivered. It's too slow. It's too uh, opaque. It costs too much. It's not really responsive to the actual problems or objectives of the clients, or it's not as responsive as it could be. And I think I can make a difference. I, I was blessed to have this career that you've rattled off here uh, in, the, in the introduction, have all that time in big law in the course of that to meet with so many leaders of so many organizations, the law firms, the corporate legal departments, and the public interest organizations. And so I think I'm in a position to help, and that's what, I, what I'm trying to do. And so those organizations with whom I'm working and some others um, are different ways that I think I can stay informed, understand what, what the problems and the challenges are, but also um, evangelize a message about how we at every stage can do this better. As most things in life, we're all in this together. So everyone needs to do a better job. Actually, the clients, the big corporate clients need to do a better job of organizing the way uh, they, they uh, consume legal service, the way they interact with the law firms, they can do better. But the law firms themselves are, are the, the ones who have the most opportunity to change for the better. Yeah. You know, you at during your years at Oric, you uh, had a, a reputation as an innovator. The the firm has a reputation as an innovative firm, thanks, uh, of course, in part to you, and it's continued to be an innovator since since you've left there. Uh, but you're, you know, I, I think of your time there as focused on building up a big firm serving big clients. Uh, and now you're, uh, I, I've talked to you a number of times. It seems to me that your interests are are, are much broader. You're looking across the entire legal landscape of, of those who are not necessarily being served well by this system. And I'm wondering what what your experience at, at Oric and over those years uh, equips you with to address these broader these broader problems. What what do you take from what you learned at, at Oric and how do you expand that more broadly to, to the population as a whole? Well fundamentally I learned how it works. I, I know how a law firm, in big law firm, and you're exactly right about what my career was, how it assembles 
resources, how it thinks about taking those resources to serve the clients, how it thinks about its economics and, and the, diff the issues that motivate it, which are, are often ones that uh, border on being inconsistent with the interests of the clients, the billable hour, for example. Um, but so I, I learned how it fundamentally works. What, and I didn't know when I left Oric exactly how far the reach would be of what I might uh, work on, what I might try to influence. So I pushed myself out of my comfort zone, and it, and it was really pretty painful at the beginning, getting myself into situations that I didn't know anything about, I never experienced. There's so much of the world of law that if you are, are just in a big law firm all those years, you, you really don't, uh, you don't learn about, you don't right. know the real dynamics yeah. of it. But as I've gotten into these different dimensions, so access to justice, smaller law firms, for example, two different dimensions I wasn't involved in, the issues are pretty much the same. It's the, the economics are quite different, yeah. the resources are quite different, but the issues are, are pretty much the same. Yeah, I mean, are they, that, I guess that's what I'm trying to understand is, is uh, and ironically, I'm on the other side of the coin in that I've never worked at a big law firm. I've only worked in a small practice. I've been a solo uh, much of my career. Uh, and and even there, I think there are problems of the, the sort of the really lower end of the spectrum, the, the pro se litigants who are going into court without a lawyer at all, or the people who this, the system is just not even reaching them really in any effective That's way. Right. Uh, that that uh, I, I think a lot of lawyers just don't at all grasp what that's like for those people. They, they, the questions they have. I mean, it, just uh, so it was the interview I was uh, talking to somebody the other day who was. Oh, I, I was hearing an interview with uh, a, a guy on NPR. Actually, the guy, a guy from the rock band The Slants, which had the Supreme Court case this year over the over the uh, registration of the trade name The Slants, and he was saying. You know, it's so surprising to me that I was a party in this suit and here I was in the Supreme Court and I wasn't allowed to talk. Mm -hmm. Like they don't understand mm -hmm. the way lawyers do how the system works. Mm -hmm. So how do we, you know, how do, how do we begin to uh, address that? I mean, where, where, where do you see the need most urgently and, and where are you focusing your efforts? Huh. Well, there, there's so much. So you touched on one of the most important problems for in, in access to justice that people, ordinary citizens, don't understand how law works at all. I mean, one of the things we're going to try to do with the podcast, uh, seriously, is to try to broaden the audience and, and help more people understand how law fundamentally works. But, but that's a, a, a detail in, that needs to be addressed, and that's a, that's a common sense problem. People don't, so just staying with the, that example that, that you just shared, People, more often than not, don't even know they have an issue that is a legal issue. They know they booted, got booted out of their apartment, but they, they don't see that as a legal issue. The problem is they need someplace to live. And whatever the issues are in immigration, family law, and so on, they may know that there's, some, there's a court they've got to go to or something, but fundamentally they know that they want to care for their children or they want to stay in the United States or whatever the issue is. That's, and and in, in big law, what we always tried to make sure our lawyers understood is that the clients, in the biggest of matters, don't think of those things as legal issues. Those are business issues. They've, they're in a dispute or they're doing a transaction. That's what matters to them. And the law is an element of how they 
get to where they want to get. And that's really what, what, we, what the reality is for someone who has been evicted from her apartment. That's the reality for someone who's being uh, sent back to the country from which she came. And so we have to bring law to that, and we need to have a strategy. When, when I first was elected at ORIC, I sat down and tried to figure out how can we do a better job of delivering the service our clients need on the terms that they want them in the places they need us and all of those those things. And there was no rule book for that. We just figured it out step by step. Well, that's what we need to do with access to justice. That's what we need to do with more sensible programs within the corporations to to consume legal services. It's what we need to do in legal education, which which has a huge need for trans for for uh, uh, for change, yeah. um, and but it's just common sense. We know what the issues are. How do we proceed, knowing what the 21st century enables and permits? How do we proceed to get better service to these people who need it? And whether that's the biggest corporation in the world or it's the poorest citizen in Seattle, the common sense question is: How do we get legal service? on terms that make sense to the person who needs it. Yeah. You were a a 43-year-old labor employment litigator when you became chairman of ORIC. I don't know whether you had any management experience up to that point at all, but what was was the mandate for you? How did you come into that position and what, why, why you, why did they want you in that role? So I, I thought about that at the time and I, and, and I concluded that they must have wanted change. Because back then, law firms did not elect 43-year-olds to run the firms. It's now more common. But back then, it was normally someone at the very end of uh, his career, not a his or her, but his career, and, and someone who came from the corporate department as likely as anything. I had built... Um, the labor and employment practice at ORIC. So I had done that, and we had it up to about 12 lawyers uh, when, uh, when I uh, was elected. But I had done that. But I, I had done things differently in building the labor and employment practice. ORIC didn't have one when I got there. And, and so we created a new department. We made it successful, and we were really representing uh, important companies on important matters and and it was very it was uh, going very well and i and the firm had been through a very difficult time 2 years earlier than i was elected there'd been a big change in the law affecting our biggest law practice and Is that it, municipal bonds? Yeah, yeah that was the public finance practice mm-hmm. and and the tax exemption for for a lot of the transactions that we did um, was uh, eliminated, and so it changed the market. And suddenly, there was a difference in demand for our services. It was a short-term dip, but but I think everybody in the firm got the idea that these forces external to us can be perilous, and so we need to position ourselves better for a future in which there there's likely to be more and more change. And right at that same time, law firms from elsewhere in the United States were coming into the San Francisco Bay Area market where Oric was entirely at that yeah, time yeah. or nearly entirely and you could see we're facing different competitive um, firms coming into our market from New York and from Los Angeles and so on you could see that the nature of the the needs of the clients were changing and they need they needed service in areas that we really didn't do at the time so 
I concluded there, that must have been it. It must have been that they, that the partners saw the need to change, to adapt to the times, and they selected a relatively young partner who had built something that was new in the firm, and and put him in charge. Yeah, I was thinking about the the fact because it's hard it's hard to research your name without finding the word innovation attached to it all mm-hmm. all over the place. I mean, you've you've literally received honors as an innovator individually yourself and and the firm. And I was thinking about the fact that back it at that point when you became chairman in, in those years, innovation wasn't a word that got thrown around a lot or disruption or some of the words right. that we use now. Right. Uh, I mean, did you think of yourself as innovating or did you think of yourself as as building the firm? I mean, how, right. how did you look at what you were doing? Well, I, I thought of myself as, as, as a change agent, not in those words. Yeah. We hadn't, there were no buzzwords for this. Right. I mean, I really, what we, what we just talked about, I literally thought through, why me? Yeah. And and the only conceivable answer was change, because I, I was someone who had done something differently in my short time at the firm. I'd been there 10 years total at that time. Um, and and so that's how we thought of it as change, yeah. not but, innovation. But change what? Change how? Well, so change again, really just apply common sense. Yeah. So here we are. This one practice that's so important to our firm has been uh, diminished. So now. Uh, what do we do? And, and so, well, well, we'll just think it through. Just like you do, you get a, a new dispute and you're a litigator, you think through how are we going to win this? Right. What, what does that look like? And then what are the steps we need to take to get from here to there? Yeah. And so, so that's what we did. Some of it was obvious. So we needed to diversify our, our practice areas. We were too dependent on one. Right. It was, it's still a great practice at Oric. It's a fabulous practice. But it was better for us to have, be diversified. We were too dependent on the San Francisco Bay Area market. And all these other people are coming in. So we better establish ourselves in other places. And some of that was, was obvious. The, the early strategic issues... Well, they weren't obvious, but they were they were knowable. You could figure them out and, and go for them. The things we did later were harder. Thinking about how do we change the way we go about delivering legal service. The early decisions we made were basically strategic. Ex- expand to other cities, expand overseas at some point, uh, right. expand your practice areas, those sorts of things. Those, and, and the sector. We, we, we Progressively, we got more and more focused on industry sectors, and Oric's very clear now for the, the three sectors that it, that it represents. So those were strategic questions. And the other thing we did was, was recognize that we had to be aimed at one part of the market or another. So we aimed at high-value engagements, where there's a lot at stake for the clients and where the lawyers make a big difference. And that made a that decision uh, affected pretty substantially what kinds of cases, matters, transactions we would take on and which ones not. But then we turned to, once we, we had ourselves on, a, on the road to having a sound strategy for the future, uh, then, then we turn to the infrastructure kinds of questions. But to, your, to the question you asked about thinking of ourselves as innovators or disruptors, we didn't think that way at all. Yeah. It was about change. And I'm not sure that today it's all that healthy for everybody to think that their objective is innovating. Yeah. I think the real objective needs to be making things better, whatever it is you're doing, serving the clients better, <clears throat> making the career path for the associates more rewarding so they want to stay in the firm. Whatever the issue is, it's, it's about making the outcomes better, making the experience of the clients and the lawyers better, whatever it is, it's making it better and, and I think we sometimes um, get ourselves focused on the wrong 
issues when we think of it as just innovation for innovation's sake yeah. or disrupting for right. the sake of disruption. Yeah. Well, uh, by that measure, uh, you consult with law firms now. Uh, how are law firms doing in making it better? Let's let's start with making it better for the client. How, how are law firms doing? How do you grade them and, on how much progress they've made in improving client service and thinking and, and understanding, as you said earlier, the client's business and, and the business yeah. goals? So I have three answers to that. One is <clears throat> that it's uneven and almost everything that, that we will talk about across the universe of lawyers, law firms, whatever the, the service enterprises are, it's uneven. Some are way better than others. Some are very focused in doing a great job and others uh, are, are doing less well. In general, I think the law firms are making progress. They're, they're aware that the market wants change. They're aware that in some way that the market is restless and, and, and it feels like it's not being served well enough. <clears throat> but my most fundamental observation is they're not doing nearly enough. And they're not thinking fundamentally enough. Very few firms are really thinking about the fundamental elements of their business model, which are where the real change needs to occur. The way they think about uh, serving the clients, the way they organize resources, how much, how many human beings and, and what the backgrounds of the human beings needs to be, how much they use technology, how much they use third parties to work in collaboration with them, and certainly their financial model, the billable hour being at the heart of everything, <clears throat> is not consistent with the improvements that we need to make in delivering uh, legal service. And then finally, the um, investment model. Law firms are not nearly in the place that they need to be to think about foregoing income in the short term, taking that money that they might distribute to the partners and instead using it to build a better tomorrow and to, and, and, and to do the things including experimentation. A lot of investment in improving a business is experimenting with things you're not sure are going to work. You, and, by the, and of course, in law, you never experiment in the sense of risking the client's interests, but you experiment with different ways that you might go about doing something and, and that requires investment. And, and on those fronts, changing the fundamental model, I don't think law firms have made much progress at all. Well, are, are you suggesting that, that the law firm model itself is, is archaic and, and needs to be changed in some fundamental way? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it quite that way, but the model needs to be changed in a very fundamental way. That doesn't mean it can't be a partnership. Although I do think, as I testified uh, to the California State Bar a couple of weeks ago, I do think we should permit investment in legal service enterprises, including law firms. But, but I think the partnership model can work or some other kind of professional service organization can work. We need partners. We need highly experienced, highly trained expert lawyers in the mix, and certainly in the biggest firms. But the idea that the work needs to be done almost entirely by people who are licensed to practice law makes no sense at all. None. Right. Right. The idea that the only capital you can have to support your organization is after tax income of the people who happen to be partners in the firm doesn't make any sense at all either in the, in the modern era. And, and including when you weigh the considerations of protecting the public against the considerations of, of creating the most vital legal service organizations. 
Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's that old joke about, uh, I forget whether it's Richard Susskind or somebody said something about, you know, it's, it's awfully tough to stand up in front of a, a room full of people who are making a million dollars a year and tell them their business model is broken. Right. Uh, and I, I imagine you must have gone through this to some extent at Oric right. as you did try and push changes. That was a, a hundred plus year old firm at the point that you became chairman. Right. And there must have been a lot of ingrained ideas about uh, how we do things and, and how things should be done. Uh, so, so how do you how do law firms confront the need to change and, and make that happen within their organization? So they have to lead. That's why law firm law firms are headed by leaders. If they're going to be successful, they're not managing. They're, this isn't uh, uh, being a foreman of of a of a uh, manufacturing organization where there's machine tools and there's t- tolerances you have to um, perform to. This is leading people who are independent professionals, and they need to be independent professionals. This is not just a partnership model question. Lawyers you only are, are helpful to their clients if they say the thing that doesn't want to be heard, if they, if they question uh, ideas. That's, that, that's what makes a great lawyer. So you have to lead. You have to have a vision for where we're trying to go and why we need to go in that direction, and you need to convince the people in your organization that they should follow that vision. And, and of course, you interact with everybody and the vision changes as you, as you all work together, but, but you have to lead them. And, and the problem isn't just that they're making a lot of money. They're not all making a lot of money, right? The, 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 the top uh, financially performing firms are making a lot of money, um, but they're all really outstanding lawyers. All the successful firms are full of people who are really good at what matters to them most, which is yeah. being a lawyer. And those are the two things you have to overcome. They're, they're making good money. They're really good at what they set out to do. And now you're telling them they need to change the way they go about it, the way they access information, for example, the, the, the technology that's available to help people improve the way they serve their clients, not just be more efficient, be better at it because they've got a more complete understanding of the facts because they use the technology to get there. So you have to lead them to understand that that old way that did serve them well enough in the past is not good enough because they could do better and they owe it to their clients to do better. It's not enough that you were, you were good yesterday, now tomorrow you can be way better if you take advantage of what technology enables, what process design enables, what diversifying your works, workforce enables. If you, if you put together a, a workforce that has some engineers in it and some uh, people from different walks of life to bring new ideas to how might we persuade that jury, or how might we negotiate this deal, you're going to be a better lawyer. And so we have to lead people to see there is a better way. And, and, and of course, we need a thesis and a plan that delivers a better outcome for them, which I believe you can do. I believe the law firms that, that drive themselves away from the billable hour, think about their financial model differently, can end up not only uh, charging their clients less than they otherwise would have, they can end up making more money and yeah. having better lives, yeah. the associates and the partners. Yeah, but you and I have been around uh, for a while here, and we've heard this end the billable hour conversation for a long time, and we're not making a lot of progress we're not. on that. We're not. How, how do we make that happen? Is, is, it, is the pressure going to come from clients? Is it going to come from outside sources, ALSPs, that sort of thing? I mean, how, do, how does that ever, how do we ever break out of that? that kind of rigid model and mindset around that. So I think 
there will be more pressure from the clients. And, and I think clock in particular will get better and better at thinking about what they should be demanding from their corporate clients. And they have so much buying power. They can influence what the law firms do. There'll be some of that. Clock is the, the legal operations consortium uh, group right. that uh, formed, what, two years ago now or so? And, oh, it's uh, five, I think. Five, yeah, five yeah. years ago, yeah. A little more. But so I think that there will be more pressure from the clients. But the leadership has to come from the firms. The firms themselves have this within their control. And I think more firms will see the benefit of this because the benefit of getting away from the billable hour goes to everything, including one of the things that's, that is top of mind for most law firm leaders today is how to attract and retain the talent they need. They're very concerned about the turnover, their inability to find the people, the inability of the law schools to attract people to new lawyers to even go to law school. And if they were to get away from the billable hour model and turn to a model that incentivized and rewarded new ideas and efficiency, they would find a workforce that liked their jobs better and was more stable and everything in between. But I think, it's, I think the, the burden falls to the law firm leaders. We'll get back to my interview in just a moment. But first, let's take a break to hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. And now, let's continue this week's interview. So let me just ask you about a couple of the couple of the things that are going on uh, in 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 the world in the legal world right now. I mean, let's start with regulatory reform. I mean, you just indicated that you did testify at the California uh, task force meeting during the ABA annual mm-hmm. meeting uh, mm-hmm. a few weeks back in in uh, San Francisco. Uh, what do you want to see happen there? What do you expect will happen there in California? Uh, on the broad, across the landscape, well, are, are we going to see, in our lifetime, are we going to see meaningful regulatory reform of yes. the kind uh, that I think you and I probably both agree we need to see? Right. I, I, would have, I wouldn't have had a crisp answer to that several months ago, but I now believe we are going to see change. I think, and Utah may be the catalyst, the leader in, in, in all of this, and, and Jillian Hadfield and, and her thinking about the sandbox is, is getting some real traction. But um, I think there are two dimensions where the change needs to come. And, and we've talked about them already in this conversation. One of them is liberalizing who can participate. So the, the, the set of people at work on behalf of the clients includes more than just the category of those who are licensed to practice law for all sorts of reasons, including bringing new ideas to the table, but but also it affects the cost and, and so on. And the second is involving, uh, permitting um, investment in legal service enterprises. And people, and that doesn't mean that law firms are going to go public. It simply means that you can access capital from um, from other sources so that you can build an enterprise that doesn't have to make a lot of money every year because you have some capital to support you. It also means that you're able to share the benefit of the enterprise with uh, others in the firm who are not 
themselves partners in the firm. Yeah. In, in the California discussion, this was one of the issues that came up that I hadn't given enough attention to. But, but permitting the, the income of the firm to be shared beyond the partners enables you to, in, to reward the others in the firm who are driving the success of the firm and, and the service to the clients. So how does that how does that investment uh, should that be allowed um, get to the issue? Uh, you know, I understand how it allows firms to make new investment uh, and, and develop new technologies and, and get better at delivering legal services. But what you know, one of the sore points uh, that I've I've noticed uh, over the last couple of years is that so much of what we're talking about in terms of investment in legal technology is going to build legal technology to better serve wealthy clients. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's going to big law firms. It's going to big, uh, you know, uh, AI intelligence uh, for, for M&A, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for uh, right. streamlining M&A, uh, the process or, or something like that. We're, we're still not seeing enough investment going towards better serving those who can't afford a lawyer That's in right. the first place. So how does this regulatory reform, in your view, uh, get at that issue, if at all? Well, that's the main reason to do it. The, 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 the um, social policy imperative is, is greatest when it comes to access to justice. Back what you were saying about the biggest M&A deals, those people don't need a new access to capital. It's, it's, there's a more sensible model than the big firms have that you might you might create, but they're, they'll do just fine in terms of supporting their investments that they need to make. The real problem is it's almost impossible to create an enterprise that is is successful and can serve the ordinary citizen with the the issue the issues that it needs to grapple with at a price that it can afford without some kind of investment to create an enterprise. One of the biggest problems we already touched on is that the, the individual doesn't really understand how law works, may not even know he or she has a legal question. They, they, they know they've got a personal question, but they don't know whether it's a legal question. And, and so investment is required to create enterprises that can make themselves known to the, the general population that doesn't normally deal with lawyers. So they know there's this resource there somewhere in the same way that they know there are other uh, service resources available to them in other walks of their lives, enables them to sustain losses in the, in the course of building the business, and then enables them to share resources across a large enough business model so that they can price at a, a fee level that is affordable to the individual and enables them to make enough money to make it worth their while, especially while we're in this period that legal education is so expensive and, the, and, the, and so much of the work has to be done by lawyers. The more we liberalize who can participate, the less pressure there will be on the economic model because you can do it more cost effectively. Yeah. Uh, back, back in your ORIC days, you. Uh, uh established the first, uh, I guess, insourcing operation in, in, in Wheeling, West Virginia, I believe right. it was, uh, uh, a model that uh, certainly a lot of other firms have, have since emulated uh, in, in one way, shape, or form or another. Um, now we're seeing a lot of clients outsourcing a lot of work to ALSPs. 
do, do you see ALSPs as a threat to the to established law firms, uh, a challenge to them? I mean, how do you see ALSPs as affecting kind of the next few years in the in the development of, of uh, the delivery of legal services? Well, I, I think there's no reason, logical reason, that our system should not permit other forms of organizations who are not law firms. I mean, law firms grew up at a different time and, and created the models they have. Why would we not permit other models to participate? So for, just for starters, I don't think though that they are a threat to the law firms. I think they're symptomatic of a, a reality in the market. The market is restless. The market is, they're not in revolt, but they're not satisfied with the way legal service is being delivered to them in the ways that we talked about a moment ago. And so they're finding other ways. The fastest growing enterprise to deliver legal service is the in-house law department. That's growing yeah. faster than anything. Yeah. And, and, and that, in a way, maybe that's a threat to the law firms, but it's like a wake-up call to the law firms. And these alternative legal service providers, it's a very healthy development. And, the, and there's so much demand for legal service. There's plenty of work for all of the law firms and all of the legal, uh, alternative legal service providers to do. The one place where the expansion is greater than it should be is the in-house departments. These are cost centers in enterprises that's core competencies are doing what they do in whatever business they're in. And now they've got to go into the law business because it's too expensive to hire big law to do it for them in the way they used to do. The reason people in the AMLA 100, 200 think that the demand for legal service is flat is that the, the market is choosing other solutions to the traditional one. Yeah. But I think there's plenty of room. There's so much demand for legal service and so much demand that goes unmet. I think there's plenty of room for everybody. There's plenty of room, that's for sure. The question is getting those services to the people who need them, not to the people who don't need them. And, and on that, right, for, for sure. So there's, there's two, uh, and the, the most pressing issue is access to justice. If, we, if we're really going to have rule of law in the United States, our citizens need to be able to use the legal system to defend themselves or assert their claims and, and, and organize their lives, all of that. And they, you can't do that if you can't afford a legal service solution. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a lawyer, but you need some help to, to deal with this uh, incomprehensible system. So that, that's one thing. But on the corporate level, the clients need to push back more. I said this earlier, but I'm going to repeat it for emphasis. They need to push back more. They could get better service from everyone who was serving them if they asserted their buying power and if they were a little more ready to take a chance on a firm that isn't presently ranked as the number one law firm in the world, but is every bit up to doing what it is that they need done today, take a chance on some of those other firms. This is one of the things I've learned about as I've dealt with smaller firms around the United States. There are great law firms in every region of the United States whose lawyers really can, uh, in a very effective way, meet the needs of the most sophisticated corporate client. Yeah. And, if, and, and the clients need to get themselves the confidence to get beyond the, their traditional solutions and the easier way for them to do things and, and push for yeah. uh, new solutions. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that legal departments are more willing to do that. I mean, a few years ago, there was still that mindset that, uh, you know, 
I'm not going to be the one to hire that lower cost firm. And then we lose that case. And then it's, it's my butt on the line. Uh, now, I, you know, I think legal departments are much more cognizant of exactly what you said, that you can get high quality legal services at lower cost from different kinds of providers, whether it's a smaller law firm or an ALSP or whatever it might be, depending on the matter. Um, much savvier about that. Um, our time is starting to run short here. We've been talking. I could I could sit here and talk all day to you, uh, but we don't have uh, I don't have enough bits on my computer to record it all. Uh, but I wanted to ask you what else What else is on your mind? What What haven't we talked about that, that you're thinking about, watching, observing, caring about these days? Well, we've touched on everything I, I that I in, in in law that I'm concerned about. Um, including we just briefly touched on the need to uh, reform how legal education works. Our legal education needs to prepare the lawyers of tomorrow in skills and, and areas of knowledge that, that it's just not very good at, at uh, preparing them with. And, and so I, I, that's a very important issue. That's why I think the, the Institute for the Future of Law Practice that Bill Henderson and others have formed is so important. Uh, because they, it, it, it's a, a pragmatic way to create uh, another uh, set of uh, elements of a curriculum that could be bolted on to traditional legal education. But I think that's, that's also very important. The other thing that I'm concerned about um, is this question of uh, creating rewarding careers for lawyers. I, I was uh, inspired to be a lawyer by a, a vision of what it was like to be a lawyer. You were a high school teacher originally. Right? Yeah, you know, a sixth grade teacher. Sixth grade teacher. Sixth grade okay. teacher, right. But Perry Mason inspired me. I wanted to be <laughs> I wanted to be that kind of lawyer that would find the truth and that would that would use the litigation uh, forum to to get the truth out and and, and get the And in, we all know that's just exactly what it's like every day exactly in real courtrooms, yeah. right? Well, there's a lot of it in the in the best cases there is a lot of that. But the day-to-day the -day experience of the lawyer isn't the, that, the, that romantic idea that, that we had, and it could be more that way than it is today if we made some of these changes. We need to, I think, really, we need to, to change the way legal education works, but more fundamentally, we need to change the reality of the experience of the young lawyer. I have yeah. a, a daughter who is in, just entered her third year of law school this week, and I've been living with her through the conversations with law firms and through the things she thinks about and deciding what to do next. And she correctly sees that so much of what the day-to-day -day experience of associates in big law firms is, that it's not very appealing. And she, she really did a lot of soul searching about what she really wanted to do and, and shopping among law firms before she made a choice. And, and that Every law student, I think, has the same, more sophisticated, more informed outlook. And we need to change the reality in the law firms so that more people want to be lawyers in law firms. And then certainly, we need to create a new reality so that people want to serve the public and the issue that you raised before right. in access to justice. Well, I mean, one of the great... Uh inequities in uh, uh, in the legal profession uh, for those entering it as lawyers is is, is the pay gap and when, when I went to law school the gap between going to work in a public service job and going to work at a big firm job was not 
anything. I mean, it was this gap, and you'd obviously make more money going to a big firm than you would going to public services, but it wasn't so huge that it basically left you no alternative about which way to go. I mean, now everybody wants one of those big firm jobs because they're saddled with all this debt, and they want to get rid of the debt, and they want to make some money. Uh, and, and it's harder and harder for people to make the decision to go into public service jobs. I mean, some schools have loan forgiveness for those who do and, and whatnot. But it seems to me that, that that salary disparity between big firms and the, and the rest of the legal world is, is a big part of what's maybe in some way contributing to the access to justice problem we have in this country. No question, and especially since legal education is so expensive. If it weren't for that, if the legal education weren't so expensive, this, then this wouldn't be as big a problem yeah, as it is. Right. But it's a very big problem. And, and what those students very, more often than not, I think, decide is I will go to big law long enough to earn enough money to pay right. off my debt. Right. And then I'll move on to what I, what I what really, really want to do. do with my life. Right. Yeah. So, so this is one of the reasons that we need to permit investment in enterprises that are going to serve the public. Because if we can create enterprises that can serve the public in a way that makes a profit, then the, that gap will still be substantial, won't be as substantial, because you can make a decent living serving consumers, individuals, in their legal issues. But right now, it's very hard to do that. Well, Ralph Baxter, uh, thanks for taking the time to be with me today on Law Next. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Bob. Thank I'm you. Looking forward to the launch of your podcast, and I will be an avid listener to that. Okay. Thanks again to today, the sponsor of today's program, My Case, with thousands of customers as a trusted practice management solution helping lawyers across the country run organized, efficient, and successful law firms. You can try My Case for free today at mycase.com. And a big thanks, as always, to uh, the guy who produces and edits this show, Ben Ambrogi. That's it for this week. This is Bob Ambrogi.